Today on Students Over Systems, we're celebrating the creation of school choice programs across the country. Former U.S. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos discusses why children should be hostages no more. Welcome to Students Over Systems, a podcast that celebrates education freedom. I'm your host, Jenny Gentles. At Students Over Systems, we talk with the creators, advocates, and beneficiaries of education freedom. On today's episode, we're joined by U.S. Secretary of Education, former U.S. Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos. Betsy DeVos is an accomplished business leader and champion for freedom. She served as the 11th U.S. Secretary of Education from 2017 to 2021 and delivered historic reforms to improve education and ensure civil rights are protected. For more than three decades, she's led the fight for policies that allow students and their parents the freedom to choose the best educational option for them. She's the former chair of the American Federation for Children, the Philanthropy Roundtable, and the Michigan Republican Party. She and her husband, Dick, have four children and 10 grandchildren. Secretary DeVos, thank you so much for joining us. Ginny, it's great to be with you, and please, please call me Betsy. Happy to do so. So you offered frank perspectives and insight into the contentious education policy world in your book, Hostages No More, The Fight for Education Freedom and the Future of the American Child. As the director of IWF's Education Freedom Center, I was so honored to host the book launch celebration of this important book last year. And I'm really grateful for the opportunity to talk with you today and delve into that book a little more. I hope that's okay. Absolutely. And thank you again for helping launch the book and helping get the message out there early on. Okay, so let's talk about what that message is. Message is. That's uh, quite an interesting title, Hostages No More. Um, you wrote in the book that the central problem with our education system is that it's designed to serve adults and not kids. So what should be done? Exactly. Well, uh, the title is admittedly provocative, but it is a direct reference to a quote that Horace Mann made. Horace Mann, commonly understood as the father of our K-12 education system, uh, about 175 years ago, he said at the founding of the system, he said that educators are entitled to look upon parents as having given hostages to our cause our cause being the cause of the K-12 education system that he was forming. And we have seen over the years, over the decades, and uh, the work that I have done has continued to try to show and expose how kids have been held hostage in so many different ways, whether it's hostage based on their zip code, where they're born, where they live, where they're assigned to go to school, or hostage to an agenda that is contrary to their own family's agenda. And uh, if there's a silver lining to the pandemic, it is that families awakened across this country about what was really going on in the schools that they thought were doing quite well for their kids. Many families found out absolutely the opposite. And it has really aroused an interest and a momentum that we've never seen before in the three and a half decades I've been involved with this work. So it's really a momentum to change policy to support parents making the choices and decisions about where and how their kids go to school and learn. 
So this Horace Mann fellow, I don't think that any of us paid too much attention to what he's created. We just assumed schools were the way that they should be. They're assigned by uh, residents and uh, they are organized in a particular way. Um, but now that parents are asking questions, they're looking into, well, why are they assigned by residents? And and why are they organized this particular way? And who is this Horace Mann fellow? So another thing that he he said that you wrote about in the book that um, the education, well, your take on, on what he created is that his system isn't about embracing our inherent uniqueness. It's about creating conformity. Exactly. Well, so how does school choice counter that industrial era conformity driven K-12 education model? Sure. Well, the, the goal of the system when formed was to actually uh, have kids go in one end and come out the other end, essentially the same for a time, a period in time where it was important to have uh, lots of people ready to work in factories on assembly lines doing uh, the same repetitive work we know that that's not how we're wired up. That's not how kids are made. That's not how we learn best by doing things absolutely the same way and having the same approach to everything. And I think, uh, again, recognizing, acknowledging the uniqueness, the specialness of each individual child and allowing families to find the, the way that's going to unlock that uniqueness in each child has been the real goal of education freedom and school choice. And, uh, and again, over out of necessity the last couple of years, there have been many, many experiments made um, out of necessity when schools refused to open and uh, were not teaching children well or robustly at a distance learning um, environment. Lots of families decided we're going to, you know, we're going to just get together with a few of our neighbors or a few of our friends and we're going to find a teacher or in some cases, you know, there was somebody in, in their midst who could do it. And we had all of these interesting sort of 21st century one-room schoolhouses forming. And that trend is continuing to grow. Uh, again, acknowledging and recognizing there are different ways for every child to, you know, every child learns differently and there are different ways to approach things. Mm -hmm. um, I think about a little school not too far from where I live in West Michigan that, and, and anybody who knows Michigan knows it gets really cold. This time of year, it's winter. We have lots of snow, although we don't have any right now. Um, but this school is an outdoor school that the kids learn outdoors every day, all day. And teachers choose to be a part of this school. And there's waiting lists for kids to get into it. I use it just as an example of the fact that everybody is different. And let's and acknowledge and embrace that and support those kinds of opportunities and those different kinds of approaches. That's what states are beginning to do as they change their policies to support families and, and parents, not, uh, you know, not sending resources to a system or a, a bunch of buildings that, uh, you know, hold these kids captive to one approach and one method to learning and uh, and experiencing their K-12 education. Well, certainly micro schools would be an example. You talk about the learning pods and this growth of the micro schooling movement. Um, it, it's it's 
exciting to see uh, what can come out of this silver lining of, of the COVID era, as you called it. So at Students Over Systems, guests are the parents and policymakers with the power to make education freedom a reality for all families. And so you are certainly one of those people. You started out initially decades ago uh, funding private scholarships, but then you shifted strategies. Can you can you tell us a little bit about your early involvement in the school choice movement and why sure. there was that shift? Yes. Well, um, my involvement really began when our oldest child began kindergarten and I started a search for the best place for him to attend school and to learn. And, um, you know, at that time, there wasn't a lot of choice or option for us to make in West Michigan. And frankly, there still isn't enough of those choices today. But we, you know, Dick and I knew we were going to be able to have our children go wherever we wanted them to attend. If it required tuition, we were going to be able to afford that. And I came across a little um, school in the heart of our city, the Potter's House School, that is a Christian school serving the community um, right around it. And I began to get involved there. Rick didn't go to school there, but I volunteered. And the more I got involved, the more I recognized and realized that the policies around education were really unfair and unjust to families of low incomes. And so that was what the genesis of my involvement was. We thought we could help make the case by raising money for private scholarships, by giving money ourselves to support children going to schools like the Potter's House. But it very quickly became clear that the political piece of it had to be a part of it as well, um, because there is such such strong uh, support for and uh, you know, there's such a, an infrastructure around protecting the system um, with the teachers unions, the school, I prefer to call them the school unions being at the head of that, uh, that pile or that pyramid. Um, and, and they're, they're not, they have not in any way allowed for or made welcome to uh, allowing families to have the kind of power they need to have to make these choices. So that was really the genesis. And then over three decades, it really was working nationally with organizations that were aligned around the same goals, changing policy at the state level, because that's where most of the most of the policy happens around education. Uh, though Washington controls a lot of the regulations, as we well know, and um, and and also sort of has set the tone. I mean, the teachers unions demanded a Department of Education in 1979. Uh, payoff Jimmy Carter made to them for their support in his presidential run. Um, and the, you know, they have continued to solidify their power through the federal mechanisms that then has flowed down to the states. So, well, mm-hmm. so, so, your no, work, <laughs> so your work uh, initially, again, was focused on these private scholarships, funding private scholarships. You mm-hmm. shift shifted to investing in elections to make sure that there were uh, state legislators who were supportive of of school choice in office. And then from that, um, advocating for bills that would be passed to expand, create and expand school choice programs at the at the state level. Uh, another big player in in that process at the state level would be the the governor. So you have you have decades of experience now of working with with policymakers, with state legislators, and also governors. And 
in your book, Hostages No More, you sp- specifically mentioned the commitment and courage of several governors who prioritized education because they transformed education in their state when they did right. that. Governors have incredible influence. So what was your most effective tactic for getting governors to focus on education and school choice? Um, I ask because I want to hear the story, but I also want listeners to to think about what they can do to influence governors. Well, uh, 30 years ago, it was a very different environment, as you can imagine. Uh, school choice was was very nascent. And of course, the first choices that we really had um, to, to, to point to were in the charter school laws that first of all began in Minnesota. Um, we were very involved with getting the charter school law implemented in Michigan. And the more that, uh, the more that success became, you know, that came out of those initial charter school laws and the establishment of choices and, and, uh, and, and something to actually point to and, uh, take, you know, governors to show people about what could be different and how things could be different for kids if we only supported policies that supported that. That was really, you know, the, the, the very beginning, um, uh, of this whole process. Today, governors are much more likely to be familiar with the impact that education freedom and school choice have on students because of its continued growth over the years. But those first years were very difficult. Today, I would say all you need to do is start pointing to successes in states where they have taken those steps. And, you know, Arizona is the most recent great example of going to a universal education savings account program where every single child in that state can benefit if their parents decide that's the right thing for them. And, uh, and, you know, governors are competitive people. They like, they don't like somebody, you know, somebody else in another state to sort of one up them. So much like, uh, a few decades ago around economic development policy, I believe education freedom policies are really going to be a measure and a bellwether for, um, governors and their, and their states going forward. I think, I think this is a really, really, uh, key time to capitalize on the momentum that families have felt around needing options and choices and uh, and the notion that politicians have awakened to the reality that they can make a difference, a, a measurable difference for kids in their state by supporting these policies. Well, I love that reminder that in the early days, a lot of school choice advocacy was about showing people what we were talking about. So it wasn't just a think tank policy white paper. It was actually taking a tour of a local school and seeing those, those children's lives transformed and, and that love of learning and that spirit of excitement that you could have in those halls. And, and maybe we should do more of that, those, those school visits. And there's so many different types of, of education options. Um, so a, a school choice tour could be a, a wide variety of options um, that legislators and, and governors could embark upon. Um, and then I, I hear you say in play to their competitive spirit, make sure that the governors know what's going on in other states and that the other state is ahead. And uh, that's something I definitely would want the governor of the state where I live in Virginia to realize Virginia is so far behind in school choice. It's, it's almost laughable in Florida 
where I grew up, there are over 700 charter schools. In Virginia, there are barely seven. Right. In, in Florida, there are hundreds of thousands of students benefiting from private school pro, uh, choice programs. In, in Virginia, there's a tiny little uh, poorly structured tax credit scholarship program that's not serving very many students at all. Um, so I do hope that model of, of Arizona's universal school choice that ESA, Education Savings Account Programs, is something that more and more governors will become aware of. And uh, governors like um, Kim Reynolds in Iowa will be successful in implementing in her state. And so we'll have even more states doing that. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So let's let's talk about um, where you went after uh in those early days, um, the organization that, that uh, you founded, it was uh, at one point called Alliance for School Choice. Um, mm-hmm. But you mentioned in the book, Hostages No More, that you prefer the term education freedom now. Why is that? I do. And uh, and just to give a little bit more context, there were a number of national organizations that were all similarly focused on uh, policies at the state level. So Alliance for School Choice, Americans for Education Reform, there was a Children uh, First America, but all of those organizations ultimately came together around this notion that we had to not only advocate and, and inform and educate, but also do the politics of really um, changing state legislatures and supporting governors who would support policies. I prefer the term education freedom because I think it gives a broader picture of what K-12 education experience could look like or can look like. Um, When we think of, when we say school choice, we often think of the buildings that we all experience going to growing up. And yet there's so much more that uh, education freedom can mean or can be. And uh, it really breaks down the walls and it breaks down the notion of a um, sort of one size fits all approach to how you are educated. And I think about uh, a couple of schools, should be many more of them, where uh, they have very little infrastructure. They might have a very small, tiny footprint, but their whole town is their classroom, basically. And others that are not uh, measured by the number of days that you spend at a desk in a, in a chair, but by how you actually learn, how quickly you actually learn concepts and can move on, mastery approach. So there's so many different ways of thinking about education and breaking it down and customizing it um, really, you know, to, with, for example, with the education savings accounts, you can really truly customize a child's education and buy the needs for that child at a number of different providers. And it could look very different for every single child if that's what's the right thing for that child and what the family decides. It could also look more traditional going to a a building as we know it and and, in a classroom. But that's, you know, that's the beauty of a, a, an education freedom notion that not everything has to look the same or be the same or be approached the same way. And education is the least disrupted industry in our country. And, uh, you know, some people will, you know, sort of, draw back at this notion that it's an industry, but it is an industry. It's a many, many billion dollar industry. We spend $750 billion a year on K-12 education in our country. And yet it's controlled 
by interests that have uh, a very keen interest in keeping it looking the same way and in controlling every facet and aspect of it. Education freedom breaks down those walls and breaks down that notion of a one-size-fits-all, same-same approach. And the creativity that will be brought to bear in a true education freedom environment, we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of yet. I love uh, a line from the book. I I want the spark. I want this to be the spark that will force the whole system to evolve and improve. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just... (laughs) We want the spark of education freedom to make all this creativity uh, to come forward and help um, help all students. Um, let's, before we wrap up, begin to uh, a little bit more about the um, organizations and institutions and forces that are preventing that spark from from being ignited and uh, keeping the system hostage. And uh, we've alluded to unions along the way, but let's dig in a, a little bit more um, because the unions um, have a lot to say about you. And I'd imagine you have some opinions um, about them as well. So Randy Weingarten and the and the, the NEA and the AFT, um, they love to bring up your name and sound the destroying public schools alarm. And you mentioned in the book that they do this because they don't have substantive arguments to use when they're defending their anti-education freedom positions. So have the union-driven school closures and all that's been revealed in, in recent years um, weakened their position further? Are they going to have to attack you more because they have nothing else to, to stand on? Well, absolutely. They have revealed themselves for who they are and what they are um, by really holding children hostage through a pandemic in ways that we couldn't have even begun to imagine. And, and, and again, that has revealed to families what they are really, what, what their agendas really are. And it's around adults and it's around their interests, the system's interests. It's not around what's best and right for every child. And so I think that has been, uh, that has really provided the kind of momentum behind the policy changes that we're seeing at the state levels now. And we'll continue to build on that because they're, they're not changing their stripes or their tune. They're continuing to double down. They've, you know, demanded and, and, and extorted, frankly, billions and billions of dollars to support the same system that failed to perform, that failed to respond to in, in large measure during the pandemic. And, and, People have awakened to that. And so I think that uh, they can, you know, they can continue to allege everything they they try. But the reality is that families know the score now and they are they are um, uh, they are, in, in, you know, emboldened to really demand the kind of changes and the kind of options and the kind of choices that they really need for their children. Um, I, I would just uh make a distinction between the teachers unions and all of their bosses and teachers because a great teacher is irreplaceable. And I believe in a system of education freedom, great teachers are going to be the most highly valued part of that equation. And I know, you know, I know from uh, personal experience as well as lots of uh, conversations Many, many teachers, again, saw their system respond in ways that they were appalled by, and they themselves want something different. 
And so we need to make sure to affirm great teachers and great teaching and talk about the freedom they will have to find the right environment for themselves in an environment of education freedom. Absolutely. We want the freedom for the teachers and for the students and, and families. As we conclude, I'd love for you to, to tackle your favorite school choice myth and by favorite, the one that just really bothers you uh, the most. I feel like we've been dispelling myths um, throughout the, the conversation, but uh, what is the, the one myth around education freedom that you often hear and that you feel needs to be addressed? Well, I think one of the ones that's been most frustrating for myself is that uh, in some way, education freedom is going to benefit only wealthy families or well-to-do families. When in fact, anyone with any measure of honesty looking at the whole history of education, the education freedom school choice movement will see that all of the efforts have been focused on trying to help the families who need the most help and to be empowered with the, the opportunity to make those choices. There is, there is no uh, evidence anywhere of the focus being on anything but those kids and those families who are most in need of being able to make those choices themselves but cannot because their their family income doesn't allow them to move to a better district or to pay tuition to go to a school that um, requires tuition. And so that is, uh, you know, that is just a dishonest argument um, at every level. And I, I just uh, hope that folks will look beneath the, that, the veneer of that one line and, and realize what the goal and what the focus has been and will continue to be. Well, it's been very clear to me watching your career from afar and somewhat up close for a long, long time that your focus is very much on helping the, the students and families who, um, who don't have that option. And, um, and you very much are committed to ensuring that they, they receive the, the freedom and the, the options and the leverage and the opportunity that they so, so much de- deserve. So thank you, Betsy, for talking with us today. And thank you for all that you do for students and families in our country. Well, thanks so much for the opportunity, Jenny. Thanks. We hope that uh, listeners will uh, check out a copy of, of Hostages No More from your local library or purchase it and um, and read about Secretary DeVos's work over, over many years in ensuring that education freedom is spread throughout um, our country and empowering families. Uh, we hope listeners found today's conversation informative and encouraging. If you enjoyed this episode of Students Over Systems, please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcast app and don't forget to share the episode with your friends. Thank you for listening to Students Over Systems. Until next time, keep celebrating education freedom and brighter futures.